0: Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was memorialized at the National Cathedral today where her son said she lived and breathed the notion that every citizen has a duty to understand how democracy works and has to be part of the process. Honoring the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, Nalisa Mullins also had an aid package for Ukraine and Israel is on hold until Congress can agree on new immigration policies. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett remains optimistic.
1: If we can get the deal done in January, then the damage that we will have done with, with this delay will not be that significant.
0: Why so many veterinary professionals are at risk of taking their lives, experts say there are many factors. Also the unsustainable practices used to produce inexpensive cashmere. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Fleets of military ships from the U.S. and its allies are being dispatched to the Red Sea to protect commercial carriers after some came under attack from Houthi rebels out of Yemen. In Bahrain, a member of the coalition, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke further about the mission to protect global shipping.
3: That foundational global right is under new threat today from the totally unacceptable attacks on merchant vessels by the Houthis in Yemen.
2: Meanwhile, NPR's David Gura reports companies are taking steps to avoid one of the busiest shipping routes in the world.
4: Maersk is the latest company to announce its rerouting ships. Now they'll travel around Africa, which will add about 10 days to each trip. Gregory Brew is an analyst with Eurasia Group.
5: We're looking at a major disruption of commercial shipping uh, that could result in higher shipping costs for consumers and potentially higher energy costs as well.
4: In a statement, Maersk says it's pleased the U.S. and other governments are sending more resources to the Red Sea. But, the company says, rerouting ships will deliver more predictable outcomes for its customers. David Gura, NPR News, New York.
2: In Washington, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said China could help halt the attacks on commercial shipping if it wanted by using its influence with Iran, which backs Yemen's Houthi rebels. The Justice Department, meanwhile, says it has charged one Iranian and one Chinese national with crimes related to the acquisition of drone components on behalf of the Iranian government. Officials say the crimes date back to as early as September of 2014. Hundreds of people gathered inside the Washington National Cathedral today for former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's funeral president biden delivered a eulogy in which he recounted being there the moment justice o'connor made history
6: more than 40 years ago on a wednesday in september 1981 the senate judiciary committee came to order i was the ranking member of that committee and the day's business was momentous the nomination of sandra Day O'Connor to become the first woman in American history to serve as a Supreme Court Justice on the United States Supreme Court."
2: Justice O'Connor died December 1st at the age of 93. Civil rights groups are challenging a new Texas law that would allow local law enforcement officers to arrest migrants they believe crossed the southern U.S. border illegally. This comes a day after Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed the measure during a ceremony on the U.S. border in Brownsville. You're listening to NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. There are still more than 70,000 utility customers without power across Massachusetts following yesterday's storms. National Grid estimates full restoration won't likely happen until Thursday evening. Nearly 300,000 National Grid customers were hit at the peak of the outages. Michael Dalew of National Grid says by this afternoon the number was down to about 45,000.
7: So there are outages scattered across the state, but the highest concentration of outages remain in the counties of Bristol, Essex, Middlesex, Norfolk, Plymouth and Worcester right now. And we've allocated additional crews to those areas.
0: Officials with the state's other main utility, Eversource, says the company's working to restore most power by the end of the day tomorrow. A Revere man faces years in prison and thousands of dollars in fines for his role in defrauding rideshare companies. The 39-year-old man was charged convicted on counts of wire fraud and identity theft. Federal prosecutors say it was part of a scheme of using stolen driver's licenses and social security numbers to pass background checks. The identities were then rented out to others who could not pass a check or drive legally. The Salvation Army will hold the final day of its annual Christmas Castle distribution tomorrow. Salvation Army Director of Social Services Jeffrey Bailey says the group anticipated serving 5,100 families, but with new people walking in, it's closer to 5,700.
8: Every child from age 0 to 12 receives two toys per child. And then we give a gift card depending on the size of the family. We're not giving away actual food at the time. We're giving them the capacity to go purchase the food and resources that they need.
0: Bailey says the Christmas castle will be open tomorrow at the Salvation Army Boston Croc Center from 8.30 till 4 in the afternoon. The organization continues to look for donations to help people in need, many of them for the first time. 44 degrees now in Boston. Look for clear skies overnight tonight, about 29 at the lowest. And then for tomorrow, should peak out at about 42 degrees with a fair share of sunshine. This is WBUR. The time is 4.06. WBUR
9: supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at MelvilleTrust.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Former President Donald Trump is dominating Republican primaries, and he's doing it while increasingly using language that echoes strongman leaders of the past. Rather than emphatically rejecting the label, Trump has seemingly embraced it. But there may be a strategy behind Trump's words on the campaign trail as well as online, one that is fueling his base. Here for more are NPR's Franco Ordonez, who covers the campaign, and Odette Youssef, NPR's domestic extremism correspondent. Hi to both of you. Hello. Hey, wanna. Franco, I want to start with you. Trump has always used dark language on the campaign trail, but is it actually getting more extreme?
11: I mean, you're right, Juan. I mean, dehumanizing language has been a big part of his politics. But he has ramped up the autocratic language in ways that we're just not really used to hearing on the campaign trail. I mean, this weekend, Trump told supporters in New Hampshire that immigrants were, quote, poisoning the blood of our country, which the Biden campaign and some scholars likened to the words of Adolf Hitler. And Trump, he's cast this election as, quote, our final battle. I am your warrior. I am your justice.
12: And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your
6: retribution. I am your retribution.
11: Another big difference is that his targets have shifted. In 2016, he saved his most vitriolic attacks against outsiders, migrants, Muslims. Remember the Muslim ban? But in this campaign, his attacks in many ways have been sharper against political opponents right here in the United States.
12: The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. Our threat is from within.
11: He's called political opponents vermin who needed to be rooted out. Now, of course, Trump has pushed back on these characterizations and claims Biden is the greater threat to democracy. But it's Trump's language, particularly against people within the United States, that's leading some of these political scholars to draw these alarming comparisons to past autocratic leaders and
13: dictators.
10: Right. And Odette, you have been looking specifically at Trump's rhetoric on social media. Tell us what you've been seeing there.
13: Yeah, Juan, I've really focused on what Trump's activity has been on Truth Social, um, because you'll recall after January 6th, he was booted off of Twitter and Facebook until relatively recently. And on Truth Social, there have been a couple of trends. Um, First, his volume of posts has really been climbing over time, especially starting in the early summer. His number of posts daily has grown. Uh, And this is likely attributed to two things. Um, First, campaign season is really getting into gear. But also to the fact that the number of indictments were piling up. And so a major theme of his posts have related to those cases. But the second trend that we're seeing is that we're seeing him invoking much darker language in his posts, um, particularly about what he says the future would look like without a second Trump term. Um, I spoke to Kirsten Ty about this. She's a professor at Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, and she's studied Trump's rhetoric both online and offline since he ran for president in 2015.
14: One of the things I've been noticing lately on Truth Social is the framing of next year's election as sort of a last chance for America. So he's sharing content, and his supporters are sharing content with the message of this is our final battle to save America. And the implication that this is
10: what, the very last election for our country? And Franco, you have been speaking to people who study political rhetoric. How is it that in this day and age, sounding like a strongman can be a successful political tactic?
11: Right. I mean, Donald Trump knows how to use words for effect, and he knows how to use words as a weapon. I mean, he says these outrageous things to stoke his base. And, you know, I've been at rallies and and people are laughing at these comments. And it also keeps the spotlight on Trump. But those who study political rhetoric say Trump has crossed the line from flirting with these autocratic themes into real strongman messaging. I talked to Jennifer Mercia; She's a professor at Texas A&M University. She says Trump is following the authoritarian playbook.
15: It's always the same process. They narrate a nation in crisis. They say that politics is war, the enemy cheats. The rules no longer apply because they've already broken them. Therefore put me into power because I will break the rules for you. I will do to them what they have already done to you. And
13: look, you know, Juana, there is also a portion of Trump's base that wants a strongman leader. You know, they like what they're hearing.
10: Okay, say more about that, Odette.
13: Well, earlier, uh, Franco brought in some tape of Trump using words like retribution and warrior. And these are words that resonate in a very particular way with a growing far-right religious movement that's increasingly influencing politics at the state and federal levels and which seeks to impose, quote, biblical governance in the United States. You know, that's not a popular idea in this country. But Trump legitimized those voices during his first presidency. And through him, they see a path toward their goal. There's another part of his base also, uh, one that we've all heard about, which is QAnon. Yeah, it's still a thing. Um, You know, people who believe in that conspiracy theory see Trump as a kind of savior against forces of evil. And analysis from Media Matters for America found that since Trump moved his online activity to truth social primarily, He's amplified QAnon promoting accounts much more than he ever did before. And this, you know, final battle language that he's using, this also speaks to these parts of his base who are actually counting on an authoritarian regime if he is reelected.
10: I mean, Odette, so former President Trump is using language that resonates with a more extreme portion of his base. But do we know anything about how they respond
13: to it? Well, there was this interesting court filing in one of the Trump cases recently where a court security officer claimed that Trump's social media posts correlated directly to threats against people in those cases. Um, So specifically, he documented what happened when Trump's posts targeted the law clerk for a New York judge. He said that the number of threatening voicemails she received uh, when transcribed amounted to more than 275 single-spaced pages, and half of that was anti-Semitic. But on the flip side, Juana, when the judge in that case imposed a gag order on Trump, those threats decreased.
10: Okay, Franco, I'll let you have the last word here. Stepping back a bit, has Trump's rhetoric had a larger impact on politics in Washington?
11: You know, Juan, it was just a few weeks ago that there were members of Congress and their spouses who were getting threats over votes for the next Republican House Speaker. I mean, the reality is we're living at a moment where studies show more Americans, and it's particularly among Republicans, who feel that resorting to violence may be necessary to save the country.
10: NPR's Franco Ordonez and Odette Youssef, thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Today,
16: Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was laid to rest at the National Cathedral. We
17: received the body of our sister, Sandra Day O'Connor, for burial.
18: President Biden delivered remarks memorializing the justice's historic nomination.
6: More than 40 years ago, on a Wednesday in September 1981, the Senate Judiciary Committee came to order. I was the ranking member of that committee. And the day's business was momentous. The nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor to become the first woman in American history to serve as a Supreme Court Justice on the United States Supreme Court.
16: O'Connor served on the Supreme Court for 24 years. After announcing her retirement in 2005, John Roberts was nominated to fill a vacancy in the court. Roberts had worked with O'Connor's team during her confirmation hearings when he was a young attorney at the Department of Justice.
18: He says it was during this time that she impressed upon him a central maxim of her philosophy as a public servant. Get it done. And it's a lesson she reinforced in the brief time they overlapped on the court.
19: She and I were discussing a case in chambers, and I think she grew tired of my on the one hand and on the other hand. She simply got up and said, you just have to decide. There was impatience in her voice, but I don't think it was entirely due to me. She had made her own decision about the future and announced her retirement six months earlier. I think she was anxious to get it done. Next to speak
16: was O'Connor's youngest son, Jay. He recounted his mother's love of reading, which he said transported her to other worlds from her Arizona ranch. He said that love of reading ultimately led her to Stanford University.
18: And it's no surprise that the justice was a star in school, Jay said. But while sorting through some of his mother's papers, he found a box of report cards from middle and high school.
20: Of course her marks were sterling until I was shocked to see something. A bee, a scarlet bee. And imagine what class it was in, civics. Sandra Day O'Connor once got a bee in civics.
16: Finally, he read from a letter that Justice O'Connor left for her sons to read near the end of her life. In a parting message, she wrote to them.
20: Our purpose in life is to help others along the way. May you each try to do the same. Our purpose in life is to help others along the way. What a beautiful, powerful, and totally Sandra Day O'Connor sentiment.
18: That was Jay O'Connor eulogizing his mother, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Her funeral was today at the National Cathedral in Washington.
16: Tomorrow on Morning Edition, the fight over the Voting Rights Act in Georgia. At issue are Republican-drawn maps that one federal judge says dilute the power of Black voters. Now both sides are back in court.
21: We were not ordered back here by Judge Jones to maintain the status quo. We were ordered here to change Georgia's maps so that they reflect the inevitable shift in Georgia's population.
16: That battle and what it means for the 2024 election tomorrow on Morning Edition. You can listen on the radio, online, or on your smart speaker. Right now, you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, negotiations about immigration reform and border funding continue. One Democratic senator is hopeful for a deal so aid to Ukraine and Israel can continue.
9: WBUR supporters include Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakim Fund, a public nonprofit charitable organization, the fund listens to those most impacted by inequality and provides the funding and resources they need to create lasting change throughout Massachusetts. More at the LennyZakamFund.org.
0: Making nine straight days of wins for the Dow. Today, the index rose nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up about six-tenths of a percent to a near record high. And the Nasdaq also ended up gaining just about seven-tenths of a percent. Gasoline prices are sliding downward ahead of the holiday. AAA Northeast shows the statewide average at $3.26 a gallon. That's down 17 cents in the past month. The forecast is next.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Square Holiday Fair at One Brattle Square. Local crafts for gift giving. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the 21st to 23rd. harvardsquareholidayfair.com. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. SemesterOff.com.
2: I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one
0: to us we will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Clouds from today should clear out tonight as temperatures fall to just below freezing tonight. Still pretty breezy out there. Sunshine ahead for the next several days. Tomorrow, bright skies, highs about 42. Generally sunny and cooler on Thursday and maybe on Friday as well. 44 degrees now in Boston at 420.
14: Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series, Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. From Workday, with AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
16: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
18: And I'm Elsa Chang. Working in the veterinary field and helping animals can bring joy to those in the profession. But data shows that veterinarians are more likely to die by suicide than the general population. Anna Spidal of Side Effects Public Media reports that it's a complex issue researchers and others are trying to solve. And a warning, this story contains discussions of both suicide and euthanasia.
22: At the University of Missouri's Veterinary Health Center, students work alongside veterinary professionals during the clinical portion of training. Here, they'll learn to treat everything from horses to cows to dogs of every kind. Third-year vet student Megan Lawler is at the very beginning of her clinical training. She began her rotations about two months ago. She loves her work, but says it comes with a lot of stress.
23: As a veterinary student, you're striving to still get the best grades and be president of all these clubs. And then it carries on into being a practicing veterinary professional.
22: During her first year, Lawler struggled with anxiety and perfectionism. She sought the support of Carrie Carafa. Carafa researches mental health in veterinary professions, and he's a psychologist whose office is tucked away in Mizzou's main vet med building his white noise machine is a constant presence. He says it creates a soothing and private atmosphere when he counsels veterinary students.
24: Vet students, they're taking care of themselves, but they're also taking care of the, the patients, the pets. In some ways, they're kind of taking care of the, the owners as well. They're exposed to a lot of kind of emotionally intense you know, situations.
22: In his research, Carafa has found that things like perfectionism, financial stress, burnout, and conflicts with clients over things like treatment options and cost can all contribute to mental health for vet students and professionals. A 2019 Centers for Disease Control study shows veterinarians are between two to four times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. Mental health counselor Taylor Miller is a former veterinarian. She's also an advocate for not one more vet, It's an organization that works to promote mental well-being among people who work in the field.
10: We want to make it possible for people to exist in this career that is so wonderful without
22: being hurt. Euthanasia is often brought up as the driving force behind stress and high suicide rates among veterinarians. Research has found that using drugs to end an animal's life can have a psychological impact, but there isn't conclusive data linking it to suicides. Studies have found that access to euthanasia drugs may play a part in vet suicide rates. Experts in the industry have proposed a variety of ways they hope will lower the numbers. Epidemiologist Suzanne Tomasi says one suggestion calls for putting stickers with crisis hotline numbers inside of drug lockboxes.
25: That would be something that would be easy and it wouldn't take really any money.
22: Tomasi works for the CDC's National Institute for Occupational Health and Safety and is a former veterinarian. She says one of the big problems is that the profession doesn't have gatekeepers. Instead of pharmacists dispensing medication, it's veterinarians who both prescribe and dispense it for the animals they treat. And they often hold the keys to the lockboxes where drugs are kept. So another suggestion includes implementing a two-person system in order to access the drugs. However, Tomasi says that's not doable for most rural vets who often work alone.
23: Those large animal vets that are in a truck by themselves, they don't have somebody else with them, so who's going to sign off?
22: Ultimately, Tomasi says that there should be more of an effort to make cultural changes like reducing long hours that lead to burnout and finding ways to reduce student loan debt. But she says access to euthanasia drugs shouldn't be left out of the conversation, especially for people who are already experiencing a crisis. For NPR News, I'm Anna Spital in Columbia, Missouri.
18: And if you or someone you know is in a mental health crisis, you can call 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three numbers, 988.
16: The closest thing to Santa's workshop, in Alaska anyway, is a building just blocks from the Arctic coast. It is the nation's northernmost maker space, a place where indigenous artists can create things like walrus ivory earrings, figurines made from whale baleen, and traditional knives with caribou antler handlers, handles. As Emily Schwing reports, what's made here is steeped in thousands of years of tradition.
26: It's polar night this time of year in the Arctic, but there's a golden glow from the windows of the traditional room at the Inupiat Heritage Center in the heart of Utqiagvik. Inside, bandsaws buzz and sanders whirr. Two years ago, Percy Aiken bought a piece of walrus ivory. He didn't know what to do with it, so he came here to take a class. Ever since, he's been fashioning perfectly smooth, shiny beads for bracelets and earrings. Aiken's jewelry is a main source of income for him.
27: It gets me by for now. Once I have steady uh, ivory
28: coming in, I'll be making a lot of what I do. I love
26: carving now. Gosh, there's all kinds of stuff that come out of that traditional room. Colleen Lehman was the director of the Inupiat Heritage Center for nearly half a decade. The traditional room is available to all of Utqiagvik's 4,000-some residents. More than 100 people use this space each year to make, create, and take classes. One of the coolest things
28: that I thought that came out of there were whale jaws. I've seen an artisan who was commissioned to... Carve things on those whale jaw bones.
26: Whales are central to life in Utqiagvik. It's a main staple in the Inupiaq subsistence diet so many people this far north rely on. But whale jaw bones are both enormous and extremely heavy. So this is one of the only spaces big enough for an artist to work on a commission like that. Finding workspace and industrial tools is a challenge for indigenous artists who live in hundreds of rural communities. There aren't many large buildings and shipping costs are high. James Putkatuk is hunched over a workbench. He fiddles with something small, dark brown and pointy.
21: Well, I'm making, uh, right now this is a grizzly bear claw. And I'm I'm attaching uh, a walrus tusk ivory on on top of it so I can make a, a head figurine head
26: His goal is to fashion a pendant for a bolo tie Pudkatuk's father was a jewelry maker
21: He passed away about 10 years ago and that's when I finally sat down and decided to learn how to do this
26: inupiaq artists like Pudkatuk have learned how to use walrus ivory and whale baleen from their elders they're building on traditional designs that are thousands of years old. The local municipal government funds this space and without it, Putkatuk says he wouldn't be able to make anything.
21: I mean, yeah, this whole, this whole place is so, it's so useful for everybody. This is called a traditional room for a purpose.
26: He says he's found his purpose here, where he carries on the work his father taught him how to do. For NPR News, I'm Emily Schwing in Utke Achvik.
18: This is NPR News.
0: Thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, this Japanese tradition of wrapping gifts in cloth. Some are turning to it as a more eco-friendly way to wrap presents without wasting paper. That story in about 15 minutes. Also, our latest unsung hero. The Bruins take on the Minnesota Wild at the Garden tonight. The game starts at 7. Celtics face the Golden State Warriors tonight in California. That game gets underway at 10 Eastern time. New England's Major League Soccer team has a new coach, Caleb Porter will join the New England Revolution as the ninth official head coach in the club's history. Porter takes over after the previous coach, Bruce
29: Arena, quit this fall after allegations he made inappropriate remarks. WBR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Cambridge Naturals. With over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples, cambridgenaturals.com.
25: I'm Theepa Fernandez. Sleeping at last, singer-songwriter Ryan O'Neill loves to record holiday music.
24: It was just this fun tradition. I'm like, oh, instead of a Christmas card, maybe it would be fun to record a Christmas song or um, a holiday song.
25: His new collection next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
17: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The White House says it's increasing the pressure on world leaders to address attacks by Houthi rebels on a major commercial shipping route in the Red Sea. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says a number of countries are joining U.S. efforts to increase maritime surveillance in the region.
12: From the beginning, we said that this is an international
16: challenge. It requires collective and international action. And we've been able to bring together now a number of partners, including the United Kingdom, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands,
17: Norway, Seychelles, Spain, and even more. Houthi rebels have escalated their attacks against commercial ships in the Red Sea, claiming they were owned by Israeli companies. But most of the vessels had no affiliation with Israel. Supreme Court justices, members of Congress, and other dignitaries gathered at Washington National Cathedral today to pay their final respects to former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports President Biden remembered O'Connor as a trailblazer and tireless advocate for women.
10: President Biden applauded Justice O'Connor's grit, her dedication to her principles, and her desire for civility and said she helped empower generations of women.
6: America is the land of rugged individualists, adventurers, and entrepreneurs. But she knew no person is an island.
10: Biden also noted that as the last Supreme Court justice to have held elected office, serving as an Arizona state senator, she was particularly aware of the law's impact on people's lives. Sandra Day O'Connor, who was appointed by President Reagan, died on December 1st in Phoenix. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. At the
17: close on Wall Street, the Dow was up 251 points, the Nasdaq up 98. This is
0: NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Sales of single-family homes and condos in Greater Boston dropped to their lowest levels for the month of November for at least 12 years. That's according to data released today by the Greater Boston Association of Realtors. WBR's Aninjor Nwameka reports.
30: Sales of single-family homes and condos fell roughly 13 percent in November compared to the same time last year. But prices were high for homes that did sell. The median sales price of a single-family home in Greater Boston hit a new record high for November at $800,000. Allison Sosha is president of the Greater Boston Association of Realtors. We did see
2: a modest increase in available new listings for single families. however. The new listings are down, um, kind of month over month.
30: Sosha says low inventory remains a challenge for home buyers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zininjor and Wameka.
0: Utilities in Massachusetts are still working to restore power for customers after yesterday's storm. The state reports more than 70,000 outages. Eversource says about 29,000 of its customers are still without power. Craig Hallstrom is the president for regional electric operations at Eversource.
12: I'm really confident that by this evening, the majority of people will be restored, we'll clean up tomorrow, and then we'll help anybody who maybe has some damage that they can't be restored, you know, damage to their particular Um, homes or businesses.
0: The worsted area is around the South Shore. First night, Boston has announced its schedule for the city's New Year's Eve celebrations. Programming kicks off just after 11 in the morning on December 31st, right outside City Hall, and runs through 1230 on New Year's Day. There will be performances by artists, including local rapper Sammy Adams, also carousel rides, ice sculpture displays,
29: and improv performances. The forecast is next. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. And the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit ChristianScience.com firstnight first night. Should be a clear night, down around 29 degrees. For tomorrow, fair share of
0: sunshine should top out at about 42 degrees. 44 now in Boston at
14: 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Neon with Ferrari. Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career with Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey opens in theaters Christmas Day. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
16: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
18: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The House of Representatives is already on holiday break, while the Senate is sticking around for a few more days. It's aiming to pass an aid package for Ukraine and Israel proposed by the White House. But Republicans in Congress say they will only sign off on that if that spending is bundled with new policy restrictions on immigration. Now, the White House and Democrats in the Senate are engaging Republicans to get that immigration compromise done. And among those negotiating is Democratic Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. I spoke to him earlier
1: today. Thanks so much for having me.
18: Let's talk about some of the specific immigration proposals. Republicans want to see changes that would make it harder to claim asylum here in the U.S. How willing Are you to support some of the changes that they are pushing? I mean, these include making it easier to simply shutting the border or making it easier for officials to detain and deport migrants who don't have necessarily credible asylum claims at the beginning. What are you
1: willing to consider? I mean, what I would say is I I don't want to negotiate the specifics of the deal in public because the negotiations are going on right now. But I think we do have an opportunity to fashion a system of immigration in the United States, again, that's actually a strength for our country, which historically it has been. Uh, And today it's a huge pain point for the United States because we haven't um, been able to reach any bipartisan agreement on any of this. I was part of the Gang of Eight in 2013 that wrote the last Congress. Yeah, exactly. The whole country's history would be different today had the Freedom Caucus not been allowed to veto that bill that dealt not just with border security, although it did, $40 billion worth of border security, had a pathway to citizenship with the 11 million people that are here already. It had the most progressive dream. So
18: what is on the table for you, Senator Bennett, that well, maybe was not on the table for you 10 years ago? Yeah, what's on the table for me, for yeah, table
1: for me is to... Specifically. ...recognize that the American people don't want transnational gangs setting the border p- policy of the United States. What's on the table for me is, is making sure that as we make an agreement with the Republicans, we make an agreement that's consistent with our commitment to the rule of law and consistent to our um, aspirations. And I believe we are not going to get to a lot of the major issues that we're facing in our immigration system today. But my hope is that once we get through this moment, when we've got to do the Ukraine funding and the other issues that are uh, related at at the, the end of the year, that it will remind everybody of why having a functioning immigration system in the United States is so important and that we can have Democrats and Republicans of is goodwill work together.
18: Is there a specific proposal that you support that would effectively address, in your mind, the challenges raised by the sizable influx of migrants at the Southern well, border I think in the last
1: few years? I think today the fact that I would say first the $14 billion that Joe Biden has put in his supplemental package, which I think has been completely forgotten by everybody. That's more money than we're proposing to send to Israel and is clearly a reflection of what you're seeing on the southern border right now, which is people today, when they arrive at the border and claim asylum, have no processing uh, really of any kind, and then are basically told to show up four or five or six years from now for their hearing on asylum. That is not acceptable to the american people and we have to find a way to have a better process than that
18: to any immigrant advocates out there who suspect there are real humanitarian concerns with some of the proposed immigration policy changes that are being discussed right now what would you say to those advocates
1: there is a deep deep concern on a lot of people's part including mine that we don't do fundamental damage to america's asylum process that's very important on the other hand I think it is important to recognize that when people were claiming asylum in the Obama years um, in far fewer numbers than they are claiming asylum today because of the way that the gangs have have moved people across the planet we have to adjust to address that and we've got to be able to consider that reality in part for people that shouldn't have who's Claim of asylum is absolutely legitimate and should not have to wait four or five or six years to have that claim of asylum adjudicated in the United States of America. Who shouldn't have to wait for years and years and years for a work permit to be able to work? All of that is a reason why we have to find a way to work together on these issues, not just in the next week or two, but for the for the next for the coming years.
18: Democratic Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
18: Elsewhere in our conversation, Senator Bennett said any deal on immigration and on foreign aid would likely happen in January at the
16: earliest. He said that
18: that was tragic but could still minimize the damage done to Ukraine.
16: Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Alexandra Middlewood. Middlewood is a professor of political science at Wichita State University. In the fall of 2021, Middlewood transitioned from teaching entirely over Zoom to a hybrid format, some students in person, others online. She had to adjust to wearing a mask and a microphone and try to keep both groups of students engaged. It was overwhelming.
23: On this Monday, I was lecturing on the material. I had just finished writing something on the whiteboard and I turned around and I looked up and I have this room full of students. You know, most of them are, you know, maybe not as engaged as I would like. And I noticed there's this one student who is nodding along with what I'm saying and looking directly at me. And not just nodding in a way to signal that he's paying attention, but nodding emphatically in a way, at least that it seemed to me that what I was trying to teach was resonating with him and his life experiences and that he was understanding these concepts. And then I felt really reinvigorated and it was the most excited I had been to be there in a classroom for a really long time. And I remember thinking to myself, this, and I've really missed this, and this right here is why I love my job. And this is why I love teaching. And I hope that students will now be able to do that for their professors. And even those of us who, you know, we sit in meetings for work all the time, you know, we can now think about What little gestures like nodding may mean to someone who's presenting material to us or who's leading a meeting or, you know, whatever that situation may be.
16: Political science professor Alexandra Middlewood. She lives in Wichita, Kansas. And you can find more stories like this one on the My Unsung Hero podcast. To share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo.
14: Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public.
18: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Much of the paper that wraps holiday gifts is not recyclable unless you choose to save and reuse it. It probably winds up in a landfill. An eco-friendlier option is an ancient tradition from Japan that's getting some renewed attention. From KCRW, here's Megan Jamerson.
31: At a workshop in Los Angeles, Tomoko Diane holds up a piece of fabric. She's about to demonstrate furoshiki, the Japanese art of wrapping things in cloth.
2: So let's start how to um, wrap
31: it. The word for Oshiki refers to both the wrapping style and the cloth itself. That cloth is generally square and three times the width of the item being wrapped. Diane orients the fabric like a diamond on the table in front of her, then picks up a six inch cardboard box. And if you put this in the middle, The wrapping technique from here is kind of like what you would do with wrapping paper, but instead of scotch tape and plastic ribbon to hold the folds in place, the fabric ends are tied in a square knot or bow tie on top. I mean, either way, it's
32: kind of pretty, but.
31: Diane is from Tokyo, but calls LA home. She told the workshop that in Japan, Furoshiki has long been considered old-fashioned, but it's getting popular again. It dates back hundreds of years in Japan. The word does not mean gift wrap or anything like it. Furo uh, of oh, Furoshiki is bath. Shiki is a sheet. Yes, a bath sheet. Irene Tsukada-Simonian owns a gift shop in L.A.'s Little Tokyo, where she sells furoshiki cloth. She says back in the day, only the wealthiest Japanese had their own bathtubs at home, so most people went to a public
32: bath. And you brought the furoshiki with you, and you would use the cloth to put down, and you would stand on it, and then you would wrap your own clothes with it while you bathed.
31: And you use the cloth to bundle your toiletries and carry them to and from the bathhouse. Since then, it's evolved into a way to carry everyday items, food, and to wrap gifts, says Hannah van der Her mother is Japanese, and she grew up watching her use furoshiki for different things. Now, she runs the gift shop at a craft museum in LA, where she sells imported furoshiki cloth from Japan.
33: So it's, you know, kind of like the anti plastic bag. Um it's reusable.
31: A variety of furoshiki are on display at the gift shop, including patterns with flowers, cats and otters. Japanese furoshiki cloth is often made from cotton or silk and has a hemmed edge. Vanderster says that traditionally the cloth is returned to the gift-giver to use again and again. And you don't have to buy new furoshiki cloth, you can recycle any fabric, even old
33: clothes. You can just use any square piece of fabric. Just cut it to size. If you want, you can, you know, you, you can get fancy, you can hem it, but you don't even have to do that. Sometimes the raw edge is kind of nice.
31: Back at the Furoshiki workshop, participants say this is a great way to avoid not just wrapping paper, but also small plastic carrying bags. Kristen De La Torre came to the workshop with a plan to wrap her holiday gifts this way, but now she says she'll carry furoshiki in her purse and use them when she buys a few small items at the store. So I'm really excited about kind of the, either upcycling things or, you know, recycling. And avoiding waste during the holidays is the kind of gift anyone can give to the planet. For NPR News, I'm Megan Jamerson in Los Angeles.
6: You're
16: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9
0: WBUR coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered. Three graduate students built an artificial intelligence tool that can find a location by looking at pictures. Privacy advocates worry it could further erode people's ability to protect aspects of their personal lives online. Clouds from today should clear out tonight as temperatures fall to just below freezing. Still pretty breezy out there. At least partly sunny skies ahead for the next several days. Tomorrow, bright skies, highs about 42. Generally sunny and cooler on Thursday and maybe
34: on Friday as well. It's 448. WBUR supporters include Globe Santa, bringing books and toys to children in need. Joy is a gift every child deserves. Join the Globe Santa tradition. Donate now at globesanta.org. Boston Bruins kick off a four-game road trip tonight against Golden State, and
0: the Bruins have the garden ice tonight to host the Minnesota Wild. This is
34: 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Donfoot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at house or Donfoot.com Beauty on time. And Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE. SIPC.
29: Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal.
0: It's about sustaining journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Give
34: now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
18: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang.
16: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And as I am speaking to you right now, I am sitting here wearing a cozy cashmere sweater, which is actually relevant to our next interview because apparently a lot of us are wearing cozy cashmere sweaters. Today, you can buy this luscious piece of luxury for a lot less money than in past. A cashmere sweater can run you less than 100 bucks, depending on the retailer. So why not indulge? It turns out, though, that cheap cashmere has hidden costs to the fragile ecosystems where it is produced. That is according to Ginger Allington. She's a landscape ecologist and assistant professor at Cornell, and she just wrote about this in an op-ed for the New York Times, which was headlined this holiday, Consider the True Cost of Cheap Cashmere. Professor Allington, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, let's do the basics. You write, every cashmere sweater begins with a goat. Explain. How's it made? Where does it come from?
32: Sure. Well, the cashmere that we wear starts out as the underhair that grows on cashmere goats. And then that is sold and processed and spun into the fiber that we use for our sweaters. And these goats, this is Central Asia that we're talking, China, Mongolia? Yes. The majority of the cashmere that is produced today is produced in northern China and inner Mongolia and in Mongolia.
16: Okay, so how has it gotten to be so much more affordable than it was even, I don't know, a decade or two ago? It used to run you a few hundred dollars to buy a a good cashmere sweater.
32: Yes, that's a great question. There's been such a huge increase in the number of cashmere goats because the demand is so high that there's actually some degradation of the habitats that they grow in and that ends up producing a lower quality fiber in the long run and that produces a lower quality sweater which then you can buy for a lot less money.
16: Yeah. So I want to dig in on this, the The reasons that the way that we're doing it today is not sustainable. You've actually been there, right, and seen how this plays out on the Central Asian steppes. What do you see?
32: We see a big change in the grasslands of that region. There's a lot less vegetation, a lot more exposed soils, particularly in areas where there is a, a huge increase in the number of livestock. And to be clear, goats have been raised in this area for a long time as well. But there are just many, many more of them than there used to be. And goats are much more efficient browsers and grazers than some of the other livestock that are traditionally grown in this region. They can really remove a lot more of the vegetation down to the roots. And so that just further degrades the system.
16: Yeah. So what are ideas out there to produce cashmere in a way that doesn't wreck these grasslands for future generations of goats? but that if we want to, we can continue to wear cashmere?
32: Well, honestly, I don't know that there is a way to sustainably produce cashmere at the scale at which we're consuming it today. I think demand needs to go down for that particular fiber uh, such that herders can produce less of it at a higher quality and then that needs to be then balanced out by increased demand for other fibers as well. You can produce great products from camels, and yaks, and
15: sheep.
16: Okay, so the answer for those of us who want to do the right thing for the environment and also don't want to freeze all winter is consider other fibers, other types of sweaters?
32: Consider other fibers by vintage cashmere. A lot of the used older cashmere that you can buy on eBay and from thrift stores, that's much likely a much higher quality sweater that's going to last a lot longer. If you pay $50 for a sweater, you're going to get what you pay for. And you'll end up needing to buy another one next year. And that just perpetuates the cycle.
16: Ginger Allington, landscape ecologist and assistant professor at Cornell. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.
18: Google is paying $700 million to settle a lawsuit with states over how the tech giant runs its app store. Most of that money will be given to people who purchased something through Google's Play Store. Google also committed to changing how apps are downloaded and paid for on Android phones. We're joined now by NPR tech correspondent Bobby Allen to tell us more. And a note, Google is among NPR's financial supporters. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Elson. Okay, so wow, $700 million settlement. What do we know about who will be getting this money?
3: Yeah, the states that brought the case say the bulk of the money is going to about 100 million people across 50 states, anyone who has recently bought something in the Google Play Store. And you know, for about 70% of them, they don't have to do anything. They don't have to file a claim. The payments will just be sent to them automatically since Google already has their billing information. (laughs) Nice. Now, of course, right. Now, you might be wondering, okay, how much is each person getting? Well, $700 million, yes, is a lot of money, but it's also a lot of people who are eligible. We don't know how big exactly the eligibility pool will be, like how many people will actually be getting checks. But if it's on the higher end, don't get too excited, Elsa, because it might be less than 10 bucks. Okay.
18: So why are they getting this money? Like what's this settlement for?
3: Yeah, it's about the Google Play Store, how people download and pay for apps on Android phones, as you mentioned. And state authorities allege that Google basically forced everyone to use its own app store and get charged up to 30% on some purchases. The state's said that high commission was maintained because Google boxed out competition and operated the Google Play Store like an illegal monopoly. So to resolve this case, Google agreed to the large payment and uh, to some changes to how the App Store is run.
18: Wait, wait, so how exactly
3: will Android phones change under this deal? Yeah, it's gonna, the androids are gonna change in two important ways. First, soon when someone pays for an app subscription, a little dialogue box will pop up and give them billing options. So, you know, pay through Spotify or pay through Google. Before you only had one choice, Google. And having choice in billing was really important to the States. Secondly, Google says it will simplify the process of making apps available for download outside of the Google Play Store. So you'll be able to more simply download directly from a website. Okay.
18: I am curious, why is all of this happening now in particular?
3: Yeah. You know, it's important to note that the states are pushing for these changes as the walls are really closing in on smartphone app stores. The two big ones, of course, are controlled by Apple and Google. And there have been other big legal cases against both companies' app stores. I mean, just last week, I was here on All Things Considered talking about a jury verdict against Google that found that its app store is breaking U.S. laws. Regulators in the European Union and South Korea have passed laws mandating changes to how these app stores are operated and now Google is agreeing to these big concessions. But the same issues that plague the Google Play Store also apply to Apple.
18: Right, so will this settlement mean anything for people with iPhones like me?
3: Yeah, you know, not directly, but in a way, it's part of the same story, Elsa. I mean, Apple's App Store has been in the crosshairs of regulators around the world. And while this settlement with states is just focused on Google, you know, these high fees that are charged on App Store purchases apply to Apple, too. Now, some of the larger forces at play here in the form of new laws around the world and increased legal and regulatory pressure here in the U.S., could eventually prompt Apple to shake up how its App Store operates. There was a big case against Apple a couple years ago, brought by Fortnite maker Epic Games, and (laughs) Apple mostly won. That's now an appeal to the US Supreme Court, and guess what it's about? You guessed it, Apple's App Store.
18: That is NPR's Bobby Allen. Thank you, Bobby.
3: Thank you, Elsa.
16: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes
14: from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. We've got clear skies ahead for tonight, 29 degrees at the lowest, and a string of generally sunny days coming up. Tomorrow should reach 42, then just the 30s for Thursday and Friday. Should have partly to mostly
29: sunny and dry weather through Friday. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org/give I'm
35: here now, host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBuh Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR news station.
0: Three graduate students have figured out how to use artificial intelligence to determine the location of virtually any photograph. Privacy advocates are concerned.
7: The fact that something of this degree of power was created by a student
11: project makes you wonder what could be done by, for example, Google.
0: It's Tuesday, December 19th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, that story coming up. Also, the U.S. will be part of a task force to protect ships in the Red Sea from Houthi attacks launched from Yemen. The threat has forced some shipping companies to avoid the area altogether. Mixed Arab-Jewish communities are a rarity in Israel, and since the Hamas attacks in October and the ensuing war in Gaza, they have been under pressure. And the deadliest wildfire in modern U.S. history occurred this past August, not in California, but in Hawaii.
6: The fact of the matter is, I saw it from beginning to end, and it moved so
8: fast, like a blowtorch.
0: Why, there were so many wildfires this year coming up.
8: From NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. is calling on more countries to join an effort to safeguard shipping in the Red Sea and counterattacks by Houthi rebels based in Yemen. MBR's Michelle Kalman reports on a newly announced naval task force.
28: Houthi rebels have been attacking ships in the Red Sea in response, they say, to Israel's bombardment of Gaza. The Defense Department is leading a multinational security initiative that so far includes Bahrain, Canada, the Seychelles, and several European countries. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says the U.S. would like to see more regional partners join.
12: There is no justification for these attacks on global commerce and we hope the world will join us in condemning these attacks and working to stop them
28: he's urging the houthis an iranian-backed rebel group that controls much of yemen to release the international crew of a ship they seized last month michelle kelleman npr news the state department
8: aid to ukraine israel and the indo-pacific is on ice that's until lawmakers agree to a deal on u.s immigration policy as record numbers of migrants arrive at the u.s mexico border Eric McDaniel has more.
35: The House of Representatives has already skedaddled for Christmas break, and while the Senate is technically in session, you'd be forgiven for not noticing. Thirty-nine of the chamber's one hundred members skipped a vote last night. But a few, including Democrat Chris Murphy of Connecticut and Republican James Lankford of Oklahoma, are still here in talks with the Biden administration, trying to work out an immigration deal that would also get more aid to Ukraine, Israel, and other US allies. Here's top Senate Democrat Chuck Schumer
8: no matter how long it takes, we must succeed. Because the stakes are high for America and for our friends in Europe, the Middle East and around the world.
35: So the work continues. But it's not likely a deal could be voted on by both chambers until at least mid-January. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, the Capitol.
8: Mexico says it will challenge a new law that allows Texas authorities to arrest suspected migrants. NPR's Ader Parolder reports Mexico's president calls the law a political ploy.
11: Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador says the new state law is inhumane and that his government will challenge the measure in court. He says Texas Governor Greg Abbott is simply playing politics with migrants, but he forgets, he says, that Latinos are a key constituency and they will make him pay at the polls.
12: Is Abbott forgets, the Mexican president says, that
11: this great nation was strengthened thanks to immigrants from around the world. It is unclear how Mexico plans to challenge the measure, or even if it has standing to do so. Ada in Pierre News, Mexico City.
8: President Joe Biden today memorialized Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, calling her a pioneer in the legal world who inspired generations of women. O'Connor was the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Sandra Day O'Connor was 93 years old. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street, the Dow up 251 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Advocates for migrants and other unhoused people are applauding Governor Maura Healy's plan to fund the state shelter system with nearly $1 billion, including surplus funding. As WBR's Walter Rothman reports, a new report shows there are more than 7,500 families in the state emergency shelters, and about half are migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers.
3: Healy says the system needs about $225 million this year and hundreds of millions more next year to keep running at current levels. But Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless Associate Director Kelly Turley says the administration has not laid out how they plan to move people off the wait list.
17: We're concerned that many of those families who will still be applying and will be placed on a waiting list and without that turnover in shelter spaces, moving people into long-term housing, that there will be a lot of suffering in the
0: months ahead.
3: State officials say there are currently more than 300 families waiting for emergency shelter. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: National grid crews are working to restore power to thousands of customers across the state. Officials with the utility say this afternoon about 45,000 customers remained without power.
7: Spokesperson
0: Michael Dalo says most tree limbs and down lines are now cleared and that makes it easier for crews to restore power.
7: So a lot of our early work was removing those hazards and we're still doing that in certain areas today. Uh, but with the weather holding up and being friendly to us, we've been able to really Uh, attack the outages today.
0: More than 70,000 customers in total remain without power in the state. First night, Boston has announced its schedule for the city's New Year's Eve celebrations. Programming kicks off just after 11 in the morning on December 31st outside City Hall and runs through 1230 New Year's Day morning. There will be performances, carousel rides, ice sculptures, displays, and improv performances. 41 degrees now, temperatures on the way down should drop to about 29 at the lowest overnight tonight Night. And then we should have some sunshine tomorrow, partly to mostly sunny skies. Temperature's about 42 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives.
18: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
16: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The U.S. is joining a new force to protect commercial ships in the Red Sea. The ships have faced attacks for weeks launched from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. The threat from drones and missiles has forced some shipping companies to avoid the area altogether. For more on the impact of these attacks, including on the global economy, we are joined by NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman. Hey, Tom. Hey, Mary Louise. And NPR business correspondent David Gurra. Hi, David. Hey, Mary Louise. Tom, kick us off. Explain what this new—is a protection force? What is it? What's it going to do?
7: Right. Well, first of all, naval task forces have been used before. Five years ago, there was one in the Persian Gulf by the U.S. and Great Britain to escort oil tankers amid tensions with Iran. And before that, off Somalia, you, you might remember to ward of pirates. Yeah, This one, Mary Louise, will be more dangerous because of the repeated attacks on commercial ships and the firepower, long range missiles and drones fired by the Houthis. We've already seen a number of tankers damaged, but no one has been killed. So the task force will provide sort of an umbrella coverage to the area to assist the ships. You're not gonna see escorts individually. But, of course, the warships would uh, shoot down any of the threats and then come to their aid if necessary. Now, there's less of a risk to the warships. They're very sophisticated with radar, an array of weapons. They can see, track, and destroy drones from miles, many miles away. And a number of those fired by the Houthis, by the way, they just fall into the water.
16: Okay, so that's how this looks from a national security perspective. David, hop in here. What what impact is this having? Is it having an impact yet on global trade?
4: Yeah, it's been disruptive, but it's coming at a moment when global trade has slowed. Several major shipping companies are avoiding the Red Sea altogether, as you said. Even with this announcement, they say there's still just too much uncertainty here, too much risk. Today, the Danish shipping company Maersk, which is one of the largest shipping companies in the world, announced it is rerouting almost two dozen ships. There's been this kind of wait-and-see mode outside the Red Sea. Maersk says those ships will now go around the Cape of Good Hope to get to Europe. They're not going to try to go through the Suez Canal. Of course, that journey, Mary Louise, around Africa is longer. It will take longer, which is something I talked about with Gregory Brew. He's an analyst at Eurasia Group.
5: We're looking at a major disruption of commercial shipping uh, that could result in higher shipping costs for consumers and potentially higher energy costs as well.
4: Now, this is likely to have a bigger impact on Europe because most of the products that go from Asia to the U.S. across the Pacific, they're not taking this route. But Chris Rogers told me these tensions are happening at a time when trading volumes tend to be lower. He's the head of supply chain research at S&P Global Market Intelligence.
24: We've all done our holiday shopping in Europe and in North America. We're also heading towards the
5: Lunar New Year in um, mainland china in other parts of asia when factories slow down so we're actually at something of a slack period for shipping anyway
4: so a bit of upside there that could change though if passage through the red sea continues to be difficult and you know, this is yet another problem global shipping companies are facing right now. The Panama Canal has been dealing with drought, and that has reduced how much traffic can pass through there.
16: Uh, I just want to follow on something that we just mm. heard the the Eurasia Group analyst say. He mentioned potentially higher energy costs. Uh, is he right? What might this mean for energy prices?
4: Well, energy may be the most directly impacted given the geography here, but the overall impact may not be that bad. This strait between Yemen and Somalia, this choke point at the mouth of the Red Sea, it is important to the global energy market, Mary Louise. It's an incredibly busy route. Some 7 million barrels of oil go through there every day, and it's actually gotten busier since Russia invaded Ukraine. We have seen oil prices settle a little bit higher than it did today, along with natural gas prices. But energy analysts are downplaying the risks right now because there are other routes available. Uh, in a new note, Goldman Sachs says it's unlikely global oil production would take a hit. They say the same route is the same is true of LNG, of liquefied natural gas. Now, we have seen in recent days BP and some other energy companies pausing trips through the Red Sea, BP calling it a precautionary pause, subject to ongoing review. The last thing I want to say is oil prices have not been that high recently, and that is thanks in part to how much oil the U.S. is producing and exporting And what's happening in the Red Sea is not going to complicate that.
16: Tom Bowman, back to the security side of this. What else are officials looking at if if there is a need to thwart more attacks?
7: Well, the U.S. could strike the drone and missile launch sites on land in Yemen. Some Republican lawmakers have called for that. But the administration doesn't want to widen the Israeli-Gaza war into a regional conflict. Of course, the reason the Houthis are mounting the attacks on commercial shipping is to show support for the Hamas fighters in Gaza. Both the Houthis and Hamas get support from Iran.
16: Um, And you mentioned the U.S. shooting down drones. Does that speak to the fear that this conflict is widening?
7: Right. You could argue the Houthis are expanding the fight by firing drones and missiles. But again, the administration worries that any land attacks could expand this. And they worry another Iran proxy, Hezbollah in Lebanon, could also enter the fight against Israel. What the U.S. wants is for Israel to quickly wrap up its Gaza campaign. But it appears the war could last for months, and so too, likely the Houthi attacks.
16: Is NPR Pentagon correspondent, Tom Bowman, and our business correspondent, David Gura. Thanks to you both.
4: You're welcome. Thank you.
18: Artificial intelligence can recognize your face, your voice, even your writing style. Now, it soon may be able to figure out where you are standing. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has the latest on how AI can identify a location based on a photo and what that could mean for privacy.
35: A year ago, a group of graduate students at Stanford were taking a course on AI. CS 330, Deep Multitask and Meta Learning. Michal Skrunta was one of the students. He says he and his partners needed a project and they shared a common hobby. During that
5: time... Uh, We were actually big players of a Swedish game called GeoGuessr.
35: GeoGuessr is an online game that challenges players to geolocate photos. It has a pretty straightforward setup. You enter the game,
5: you're placed somewhere in the world on Google Street View, and you're supposed to place a pin on the map that uh, is your best guess of the location.
35: The game is pretty popular, I'll add, it has uh, 50 million players. It has world championships, it has YouTubers, Twitch streamers, like pro players. Silas Alberti is another member of this student AI project. Players race against the clock and each other. They try to pick a location based on clues like street signs, how people are dressed, what kind of landscape is visible. The students wanted to see if they could build an AI player that could do better than humans. They started with an existing system for analyzing images that was built by OpenAI, the same company that makes ChatGPT. Then they trained that system with images from Google Street View. We created our own data set of about 500,000 Street View images. That is actually surprising. It's actually not that much data. We're able to get quite spectacular performance. With a few additional modifications, the team's AI can figure out the location of any Street View photo anywhere on Earth. It guessed the correct country around 95% of the time and usually guessed the location to within about 25 miles. Next, they pitted their algorithm against a human, specifically a really good human named Trevor Rainbolt. Today, like I reached out to you by these students from Stanford University that said they built a geoguessor AI for their class that I will not be able to beat. Rainbolt is a legend in geoguessing circles, but he'd met his match. Pretty big city, I'm gonna go up over here. Wait, what? I thought it was lakes is south, and it just 5K, bro. I don't, even, I don't even want to win anymore. Well, I can't win, but... He lost multiple rounds. We weren't the first AI that played against Rainbow. We're just the first AI that won against Rainbow. AI excels because it can pick up on all the little clues humans can, and many more subtle ones like foliage, soil, weather. The group says the technology has all kinds of potential applications. It could identify roads or power lines that need fixing, spot, invasive vegetation. Scrienta says it could be a great teaching tool.
5: But it's also about things like, you know, you have a photo. You like this destination in Italy, where in the world could you go You know, if you wanted to see something similar? This
35: program can already geolocate photos not on street view. I gave it a few from a road trip I took more than a decade ago and it found most of them. It guessed a campsite in Yellowstone to within about 35 miles. Another photo taken on a street in San Francisco it placed to within a few city blocks. That's got some experts worried.
11: From a privacy point of view,
35: your location can be a very sensitive set of information. Jay Stanley is a senior policy analyst at the American Civil Liberties Union who studies technology. He worries companies might soon use AI to track where you've traveled. Governments might check your photos to see if you've visited a country on a watch list.
11: Stalking and abuse um, is, is an obvious threat.
35: In the past, Stanley says, people have been able to remove GPS location tagging from photos they post online. That might not work anymore. The Stanford graduate students are well aware of the risks. They've held back from making their full model publicly available precisely because of these concerns. But Stanley
11: suspects the cat's out of the bag. The fact that something of this degree of power was created by a student project. Makes you wonder what could be done by, for example, Google.
35: (laughs) In fact, Google already has a feature known as location estimation. Right now, it only uses a catalog of roughly a million landmarks, not the hundreds of billions of Street View images in Google's catalog. The company told NPR that users can disable the feature if they want. Stanley thinks the use of AI for geolocation will become even more powerful. He doubts there's much to be done except to be aware of what's in the background of the photos you post online. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News.
16: This year has been a wild ride for student loan borrowers. Millions went from thinking their loans would be completely wiped out to having to start monthly payments again. But big changes in the wake of an NPR investigation have ended up helping hundreds of thousands of borrowers. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, we will follow one of those borrowers, one who'd spent 20 years paying off his loans when he got a life-changing email from the Department of Education. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 20
0: minutes on All Things Considered, what the country lost through wildfires this year, and why it looks as if the mockingbird may hold the title of State Bird of Florida a while longer.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com.
0: Make it nine straight days of wins for the Dow. Today, the index rose nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up about six-tenths of a percent to near a record high. And the Nasdaq also ended up gaining ground about seven-tenths of a percent. A biotech company with operations in Boston and Germany has lost a major legal battle in Europe. CureVac sued competitors BioNTech and Pfizer in a German patent court. CureVac claimed that the companies violated multiple patents related to its COVID-19 vaccine. BioNTech countersued and challenged the validity of uh, CureVac's own patents. The German court has sided with BioNTech invalidating one of CureVac's patents. CureVac plans to appeal. The company's share price dropped nearly 30 percent today. The forecast is coming up.
9: WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger and food insecurity in the Northeast by donating to regional food banks and local pantries during the holiday season. More information at OceanStateJobLot.com.
16: I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks.
29: Just go to WBUR.org.
0: Clouds from today should clear out tonight. Temperatures just below freezing. At least partly sunny skies ahead for the next several days. Tomorrow, bright skies, highs about 42 degrees. 41 now in Boston at 520.
14: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR.
16: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
18: And I'm Elsa Chang. Who should decide who counts as disabled in official statistics? That is at the heart of a controversial proposal to change how the U.S. Census Bureau produces data about people with disabilities. Many advocates are concerned that the change could lead to a major drop in the national disability rate. NPR's Hansi Lo Wang reports.
5: These potential changes would affect the statistics used to make sure people with disabilities have access to housing, health care and civil rights protections. Right now, those estimates hinge on yes or no questions on an annual Census Bureau survey. It asks whether people have serious difficulty with seeing, concentrating, walking and other activities. So when you lump those people together, what you're doing is you're hiding the fact that there's a certain percentage of the population that faces a
36: great degree of exclusion.
5: Daniel Montt leads the Center for Inclusive Policy and helped develop the different approach the Bureau is now proposing, asking people to rate the level of difficulty they have with certain activities, which would follow international standards. If the United States uses a different set of questions, then the United States can't really benchmark itself, can't compare itself
8: with the rest of the world.
5: The Bureau is also proposing a new way of defining who is disabled, It would only include the people who say they have a lot of difficulty or cannot do an activity at all. According to the Bureau's research, using that definition could shrink the estimated share of the U.S. population with any disability by about 40 percent. Those who say they have some difficulty with activities would be left out.
26: On some days, I have some difficulty, but overall, I function on a daily basis.
5: Marene Sayo, who heads the National Disability Rights Network and has a degenerative spinal condition, spoke out against the Bureau's proposal last month.
26: Does that mean that I don't have a disability? Um, and that is really a concern for me and for members of my community at large.
33: You know, it felt like being made invisible again, right? Like the disabled community is constantly fighting
26: to be heard, to be seen.
5: Marissa Dikowski is multiply disabled and is concerned about how changing this disability data could make it harder to advocate for more resources for disabled people as an attorney for the National Partnership for Women and Families.
26: We have this mass disabling event, the pandemic, and so many folks need different types of services and supports that they didn't before. And when all of these things are reliant on these data it's just very concerning.
14: Disability services and programs are already
5: underfunded. Alice Wong is a disabled author and activist who has muscular dystrophy and uses a text-to-speech app to speak. Wong says the Bureau's proposal could add to many people's reluctance to identify as disabled out of fear of discrimination.
14: And many people who do not identify due to ableism aren't counted even though they are disabled or chronically ill.
5: The Bureau's proposal comes after years of discussion and research, but many critics say a lot of this process has been missing the perspectives of disabled people in the U.S.
25: Who gets the power to decide who is disabled or not?
5: Bonnie Lynn Sweenor, who has a visual disability, leads John Hopkins University's Disability Health Research Center.
17: And I think that requires some deep thought and conversations around inequity and inequities that have been entrenched in this process.
5: The first round of public comments on the Bureau's proposal ends today, but the Bureau is planning to ask for more feedback in the spring. Anzi LaWong, NPR News mixed Arab-Jewish
16: communities are rare in Israel. And since the Hamas attacks of October 7th and the ensuing war in Gaza, they have been under pressure. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley spent time in one mixed community that reacted quickly on the day of the attacks and worked together to protect its residents. She sends this postcard from the city of Jaffa.
28: There's a children's puppet-making workshop going on at the Jewish-Arab Community Center in the town of Jaffa, which adjoins Tel Aviv and is about 40% Arab. The art class is put on by a grassroots organization called the Guard for Jewish-Arab Partnership. The citizen group sprung up in the days following October 7th. It was the idea of Amir Ahmad Badran, an Arab member of the Tel Aviv Jaffa City Council, Badrán said he knew they had to act fast to avoid a repeat of the violence his community experienced in May 2021 during the last Gaza war.
3: We are asking our neighbors and partners, Jewish citizens of Jaffa, to take part together with us so we can save each other's back, save each other's properties, and save each other's families and synagogues and mosques.
28: He says within hours, 500 people had joined a webinar. Two days later, there were 3,000 neighbors in a WhatsApp group. Their community forum has many activities. One team is putting up posters along a busy road in Jaffa. Jewish volunteer Eitel Kutnev reads out what's written on the posters.
3: No racism, no violence in Ibu and Arab. Jaffa is for all of us. You need help, you need to report about violence event or incitement, call us.
28: 21-year-old Amit Oknin is also a poster volunteer. He grew up in an Orthodox Jewish town in southern Israel, but left.
34: I think that we need to uh, open our doors for uh, other religions, other uh, cultures. That's uh, the problem we have now. We're trying to close the doors, have a terror attack or something like that. We're trying to close all the doors because we are uh, telling the world, you see, they hate us, everybody hates us. But he says
28: that's not true. He considers culturally mixed Jaffa a utopia. I'm
17: Shira Noe, and uh, I'm one of dozens of volunteers in the hotline of the Jewish-Arab Partnership in uh, Jaffa Tel Aviv.
28: The architect answers the hotline several hours a week. So one of our uh, rules is,
14: to uh, express
28: our compassion and to
14: say yeah it's hard times uh, you're not the only one and that's why
28: we are here. Noi says in 2021 right-wing extremists from outside stirred up fights and trouble. She believes the community's solidarity has helped avoid clashes this time around. 26-year-old Rivka Lovov is a volunteer back at the puppet making class. She says Israel's problem is there's not enough mixing.
9: I have some Palestinian friends that I didn't have before and it's like the whole world that I just don't know the whole reality that you, you know you you don't see when you're not mixing
29: together.
28: Siman Levy has brought her young daughter to make puppets. She wants her to have what she didn't growing up in an all Jewish community. That she will learn from from the start. She will learn the the language, she will
14: be
13: near that, she will be in an environment that is mixed and to know that we live here together and yes and, and it's the only way. And October the 7th only reinforced that for her
28: because she says we are all in this together. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Jaffa, Israel.
18: This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. Coming up in about 10 minutes, research bears out what you probably already knew acts of generosity are contagious and increase happiness. Celtics kick off a four game road trip against Golden State tonight. Boston's coming off five straight wins. Tip off tonight is at 10 p.m. Bruins are on garden ice to host the Minnesota Wild have still got the top spot in the Eastern Conference tied in points with the Rangers. Game time is 7 o'clock tonight. This is WBUR. It's 530.
36: There's a massive evergreen tree decked out with lights on the Boston Common. It's the city's official Christmas tree, but it's also a symbol of gratitude from our neighbors to the north. Here's a tidbit of history from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. For more than half a century, Nova Scotia has sent down a fresh tree for the holiday season.
8: To say thank you to the people of, uh, of Boston, New England, for what they did for us in our real time of
36: need. That's Nova Scotia premier Tim Houston. Back in 1917, two ships collided in Halifax Harbor, causing a deadly explosion. Hundreds of people were killed and thousands injured.
8: By 10 o'clock that night, the good people of Boston had loaded a train with medical supplies, doctors, nurses, the Canadian province
36: continues to recognize Boston's efforts that day by sending the perfect Christmas tree. To get more stories like this about Boston's place in history, head to wbur.org/fieldguide.
17: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Senate is working into its holiday recess to hammer out an agreement that would provide additional funding for Israel and Ukraine. Republicans are digging in their heels, warning that any legislation must include measures to strengthen enforcement at the U.S.-Mexico border. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says both parties are getting closer to finding
8: middle ground. The details in this matter immensely because this is not a topic that Congress has tackled uh, in many years. So we know that. We know that this is going to be not easy to do, but we know, too, that we must get it done.
17: Even if the Senate does reach an agreement, there will be no funding package until the new year. Members of the House have left Washington for the holiday recess. Researchers at the U.S. Census Bureau say they do not support a proposal to adjust the Bureau's future population estimates to account for the racial gaps in the results of the country's last headcount. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong has more.
5: According to the Census Bureau's follow-up survey, Latinos were left out of the 2020 count at more than three times the rate in 2010, and there were high net undercount rates for Black people and Native Americans living on reservations, while people who identified as white and not Latino continued to be overcounted. There were calls to factor all this into the new population estimates the Bureau puts out every year so that communities around the country could use more accurate statistics to get a fairer share of federal funding. The bear's researchers say they have not found a workable way to do that after a year and a half of trying, but they say it may be possible after the 2030 census. Anzi Luang, NPR News.
17: Stocks closed higher on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 251 points, the Nasdaq up 98. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. More than 73,000 utility customers are still without power after yesterday's storm. Most are concentrated in the South Shore. The storm brought heavy rain and mild temperatures, which closed several ski resorts around the region today. Wachusett Mountain in Princeton is open with about 40% of trails. Chris Stimson is public relations manager for Wachusett. He says staff spent a lot of time preparing trails after yesterday's washout.
35: Luckily, we were able... To make a lot of snow early on when we had the cold temps and had the good windows of uh, cold weather. So we were able to build up enough of a base that that we were able to bounce back last night. The groomers did a hell of a job uh, pushing the snow around, filling in any gaps that we might have had up there.
0: Stimson says the rest of the week's chilly forecast will likely make for better conditions. Massachusetts' population grew between July 2022 and July of this year. The U.S. Census Bureau says the state's population increased by more than 18,000. That compares with a loss of about 7,700 people between July of 21 and July of 22. Today's population in the Bay State is just over 7 million people. Framingham police are investigating the vandalism of a menorah in the city as a hate crime. Police found Sunday that the public menorah was kicked over and a sign in support of Israel that was in front of it was missing. Video footage shows an unidentified person knocking it over Saturday evening. And the Martha's Vineyard community of Oak Bluffs is considering housing its municipal employees. The Martha's Vineyard Times reports that the town select board unanimously approved the preparation of a letter to the state. It would set aside units in an upcoming affordable housing project for workers.
34: Nantucket already houses its
0: town employees. The forecast is coming up.
34: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org.
0: A crisp and windy night tonight, about 29 degrees for a low. Tomorrow should peak out at 42 degrees with a fair share of sunshine. Thursday, partly to mostly sunny, but it shouldn't make it out of the 30s. 41 degrees in Boston at 535.
14: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is NPR.
16: On a Tuesday. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
18: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Tragic and bizarre maybe the two words that best sum up wildfires in 2023. There were fires in the tropics and toxic smoke from blazes near the Canadian Arctic blew down to the eastern seaboard for weeks. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports that this year's fire survivors face a long recovery.
24: Wildfires in California and the West are often dominating headlines by August, not this year. Instead, remnants of a hurricane were dumping record rain, and it was Hawaii that was on fire.
15: Welcome to the news Hour. At least 55 people are confirmed dead tonight after fast-moving wildfires ravaged the island of Maui.
24: It ended but up the being the deadliest wildfire in modern U.S. history, killing 100 people, with some having no other means of escape but to jump into the ocean. Later, this seaside resort near the destroyed town of Lahaina was transformed into a shelter where David Ormsby said he was grateful to make it out alive.
7: The smoke just kept getting blacker. It just started getting hotter and hotter, and we just got the hell out.
24: Ormsby was shell-shocked. The fire destroyed the apartment building where he rented and the business he worked in.
7: Now it's just a matter of the waiting game, you know. What what do you do next? That is the question. I don't know it. I'm, I'm working one day at a time, man.
24: Recent years have shown that it can now take a decade or more to recover from climate-driven wildfires. On Maui, they're still just clearing the debris, and there was already a labor and housing shortage before the fire. Katrin Edgley is a wildfire recovery expert at Northern Arizona University. When we think about recovery in basic terms, we're
37: often thinking, well, how long does it take to rebuild a house? Maybe a couple years if there's a backlog in contractors. Uh, but
24: a rebuilt house does not mean that you're recovered. And even rebuilding a house in a couple of years is considered fast. Edgeley researched survivors of the Marshall Fire that ignited in the winter two years ago in suburban Boulder, Colorado. She says many fire victims can be re-traumatized during the recovery because they have to prove and retell everything to insurance companies and FEMA and that slows everything down. And that can just take a significant toll if you think about the stress that can create the reliving of that experience over and over. And many learn that even if they have insurance, it's not enough to cover the costs of rebuilding. No, As you can see, slowly but
16: surely, we're clearing out the space.
24: Bernadette Grant and Richard Fox have only just now come up with a long-term plan to rebuild on property Grant owns in the forests outside Paradise, California which burned five years ago.
1: We don't even know if we can get insurance yet. I mean, we're not even close to that stage to bringing someone in and trying to get insurance on it.
24: Before Lahaina, Paradise had been the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in a century. It's still fresh for Grant and Fox, who are logging out all the dense stands of trees that pose a fire risk. Now, they hope to use the lumber from here to build a modest cabin. Right now, they're staying in an RV on the property. In the meantime, we just
16: keep clearing the property. clearing it out.
24: (laughs)
1: Try to make it safe, and
21: that's
24: all we can do. Some Paradise leaders have been meeting with their counterparts in Lahaina this fall, guiding them on how to recover from the unthinkable. Today, about a third of the Paradise area has been rebuilt. Mitchell Snyder at UC Davis says that's remarkable when you consider almost 19,000 homes and businesses burned.
4: In the future, as we look towards the one-year anniversary of Lahaina, we just remember that there are people behind the numbers that we see on the headlines. And so, for so many people, this was the worst day of their life.
24: And this year may have made the wildfire threat a lot more real to decision-makers in Washington, D.C. Toxic smoke turned the skies an apocalyptic orange up and down the East Coast, giving a glimpse of what most summers in the West are already like. Pressure is building to prioritize prevention, not fighting these modern megafires later. In Hawaii, a shaken Kurt Hanthorn was frustrated at what he said was all the finger pointing after the Lahaina fire.
6: Pointing blame. It's the electric company's fault. It's the county's fault. It's Joe Biden's fault. It's everybody's fault. They want an easy answer. And the fact of the matter is I saw it from beginning to end and it moved so fast like a blowtorch.
24: No one's stopping fires like these, he said. Kirk Sigler, NPR News.
16: Florida's legislative session kicks off in January, and while there's a gaggle of potentially controversial topics up for discussion, one that has ruffled feathers for decades is a move to change Florida's state bird. Regan McCarthy of Member Station WFSU reports.
33: Just outside Tallahassee at Wakola Springs, parkgoers can spot cormorants, egrets, and anhingas.
15: If you've ever been scuba diving and had the pleasure of watching an anhinga hunt underwater, it's absolutely majestic.
33: Chelsea Turner, who's visiting the spring, says if it were up to her, she'd choose the anhinga as Florida's state bird. Although...
31: Well, if I'm being cheeky, I would probably say the mosquito.
33: Karen Edwards, who lives in nearby Caravel, picked up popular choice. Well, we like watching the
22: pelicans, so I would say
17: um, the pelican.
33: But as far as state birds go, the pelican has already been claimed by Louisiana. Edwards isn't happy to learn that Florida's state bird, the mockingbird, has also been claimed by four other states.
17: Oh, well, we should be a bit more unique here then, shouldn't we, I think.
33: Democratic State Senator Tina Polsky agrees. It's something she's working on.
32: I know with all the craziness going on, like, this seems not important, but... Um, I have unlimited bill slots. So I have everything from, you know, gun safety
33: to mental health to changing the state bird. Polsky thinks Florida's official bird should be more specific to the state. While the Mockingbird is found throughout the country, Polsky has a bird in mind that only lives here. The Florida scrub jay is the only bird endemic to the state. Uh, It's a lot more beautiful. Polsky has filed a bill the last few years to change Florida's bird from the Mockingbird to the scrub jay and she's got data on her side. Matt Smith is a software developer at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. That's the study of birds. He used data submitted by birders from around the country to identify which birds had unique connections with which states. For example, South Dakota.
3: has the ring-necked pheasant. It's not native to North America.
33: Instead, Smith suggests the upland sandpiper, since 24% of its population breeds in the state. He's also suggesting a change for Arkansas, where, like Florida, the mockingbird is the state bird. Lawmakers are floating the mallard duck and painted bunting to replace it, but Smith says his pick is unlikely.
36: The bird
3: that came out of my data set for Arkansas uh, was a bird that happens to be named after another state, which is the Kentucky warbler. So that's kind of a... um, Political (laughs) no-go, for obvious reasons.
33: In Florida, the scrub jay has also been a political no-go, as efforts to change the state bird have met a formidable foe, former National Rifle Association President Marion Hammer. Here she is speaking to a legislative committee back in 1999.
0: You see, scrub jays are lazy and scarlet.
28: They eat the eggs and nestlings of other birds. To me, that's robbery and murder, and it's not good family values.
33: After her comments, lawmakers filed an amendment reaffirming the Mockingbird. Hammer has fought against any changes ever since. As for her accusations against the scrub jay, Smith says, yes, scrub jays are mischievous, but they're also highly intelligent.
3: They're one of our only species that practice cooperative breeding, where um, the young from one year will stick around and help the family raise the next
6: brood.
33: Meanwhile, a new set of bills has been filed. They would name the flamingo as Florida's state bird. Neither Smith nor Hammer supports that idea. For NPR News, I'm Regan McCarthy in Tallahassee.
16: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. If, like me, you have still got people you have not accounted for on your holiday shopping list, you may be feeling the pinch. Buying, wrapping, and schlepping gifts takes time. So is all that effort worth it? NPR's Alison Aubrey reports on what researchers who've studied gifting have concluded.
25: The idea that it's better to give than to receive goes way back, and the tradition of gift-giving is ancient. But sometimes the time and effort it takes feels like a lot, says psychologist Michael Norton of Harvard Business School.
37: People get very, very stressed about getting all the gifts in time. Is it the right gift? You know, what does this person really want? Do I have time?
25: I always imagine strolling through quaint shops as carolers sing, spotting something unique for everyone on my list. But the reality is far more tedious, more like scrolling online and just hoping something can be delivered by next week. So when the holidays feel more frenzied than festive, it's easy to question whether it's all worth it. But Norton assures me that science shows giving is good for us.
37: We can show in our research that that act of giving actually does improve your happiness.
25: He and his collaborators have studied the effects of giving going back to a study published in 2008. In one experiment that included about 700 people, they randomly assigned participants to make either a purchase for themselves or for somebody else. Afterwards, the participants reported how happy they felt. Turns out giving to others led to a significant boost.
37: If you take $5 out of your pocket today, The science really does show that spending that $5 on yourself doesn't do much for you, but spending that $5 on somebody else is more likely to increase your happiness.
25: Imagine you spot a scarf. It's a cold day. You think, ah, I might like that for myself, but you already have scarves. So do you really need one more? The decision to gift that scarf to somebody else could be the better play.
37: Maybe they don't exactly need the scarf either, but what an act of giving you've engaged in. You've showed them that they're important to you, and it's a very different act. It's the same exact object. It's just a scarf, but it can either be a throwaway object or something that cements a relationship between two people.
25: And the magical thing about giving is that when we're generous, we're more likely to receive because humans tend to unconsciously imitate other people's acts of giving, says Dacker Keltner, a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley.
8: Yeah, this is one of the really striking discoveries in this new science of giving or kindness, which is contagious, right? So if I am given something by somebody else, I will then give more to other people in subsequent interactions.
25: Reciprocity is a foundation of good relationships. And when we surround ourselves with generous people, we tend to feel the same. And when it comes to what to give, Keltner says it can be exhausting to buy. So why not gift the people on your list with an experience? Buy them a park pass or theater tickets or invite them out to dinner with you?
8: Because when we give experiences to people, they're almost, by definition, more personalized. They're, they're reflective of our relationship to them. We give uh, a visit to a museum to a friend who, who loves art. We, you know, take somebody out camping. We build in the fabric of our relationship to gift-giving and make it more special.
25: And one more thing, it's always nice to be present when someone receives the gift you're giving. The research shows this can give an extra lift to see the gratitude or someone's face light up in thanks. That's the spirit of the season. Alison Aubrey, NPR News.
18: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Thanks for listening on this Tuesday evening here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Donald Trump's autocratic language. Why, it's shocking for many,
34: but welcome for some. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start First Night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash firstnight and the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org give meals The Bruins and Celtics will both be back at work tonight. Bruins are in the Garden to play the
0: Minnesota Wild, 7 o'clock game time. Celtics are out west for a 10 p.m. game with Golden State. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBR events at City Space and throughout greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. Clear skies tonight, down to about 29 degrees for the low, and then a string of generally sunny days ahead. Tomorrow should reach 42, just the 30s for Thursday and Friday, partly to mostly sunny and dry through the day on Friday. 41 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 549.
18: As you support organizations that have real meaning in your life and throughout your community, please make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund helps become something a lot bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it will help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call
16: 1-800-909-9287. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
18: And I'm Elsa Chang. Michael Chow always seems to have a vision. He likes to control the details and everything, what he wears, how he decorates, what he paints. And moments after he walked into our studios in Culver City, it was very clear. He also wanted to control our conversation.
27: I coming here. I' already coming to the studio today, for instance. I already said it I'm into a movie, what am I walking into, and, uh, and I studied a little bit about you very quickly. Oh, you did? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and then, so, what we're going to talk about, so it's like I'm writing the script, right?
18: Did I do anything to defy your script, upend uh, your plans? No, no, no,
27: I'm trying to control, I'm so— I can feel that. Everything. You're trying to control the interview I'm trying to I, control. I control, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, Yeah. <laughs> But I
18: like that. You're yeah. making this quite interesting. Yeah.
27: So we have a little little a little, duel. Little, little little duel, yeah. Mm. In a good way. Mm.
18: <laughs> you might know this artist and actor better as Mr. Chow, as in the Mr. Chow behind the whole restaurant empire. These days, he simply goes by M. He's the subject of a new documentary called AKA Mr. Chow, which traces M's 84 years. His childhood was spent in Shanghai, with a father who was a star of Beijing opera and a mother who doted on him.
27: My mother attended me with tremendous amount of fuss and spoiled me and overprotecting me. I literally lived like a prince.
18: When M turned 13, though, all of that abruptly ended. He was sent away to London to go to boarding school, and while he was abroad, his parents fell victim to Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution. M's father died in prison and his mother was killed. It's one of the many traumas that M says shaped his life's work.
27: At 13, I lost everything, meaning I lost my parents, my, my culture, my, my country, smell, everything. In the split second, I was in deep depth of uh, fear, that could panic attack attackers beyond. So I have to crawl out of that and to survive.
18: When you say you were in the depths of fear when you were in England, is it because you had known at that point what had happened to your no, parents? No, I knew nothing.
27: I was naive. You know, I was yeah. uh, put there by circumstances. You right. see, The subsequent one said, I never saw my father again.
18: M still replays one of the last things his father ever said to him before they parted. Wherever you go, remember, you are Chinese. So when you were thinking about your father's words, wherever you go, you are Chinese, was that in part what inspired you to create this restaurant empire, Mr. Chow's restaurant empire? And, and if so, what were you trying to represent with that restaurant empire about
27: what it means to be Chinese? Well, when you lose everything, which I did, yeah. uh, I had opportunity I become a blank page. On a blank page, you can mm. draw whatever you wish. A
18: clean slate.
27: So that's what I did. And then I inherited as an artist, as a painter, to deal with injustice, okay? Yeah. And um, is part of the fuel as as an artist.
18: Well, that's what's interesting, is at these Mr. Chow restaurants, you cultivated not only just a feeling of exclusivity, but also of acceptance. You made a lot of guests, people of color, feel that they were part of the inner circle. Talk about that more. Why was it important to you to make room for otherwise marginalized people while still wanting your restaurant to be this exclusive destination?
27: Well, it's not a a question of exclusivity. It's a question of excellence, right? I started from um, everything is to be true. Let's start with the the menu. In my opinion, there are three kinds of Chinese food. One is the food that's eaten in China, Mm -hmm. which is 99 percent is not exportable. And then the second type developed in, uh, in America. Which, the in, food in, made for had, Americans. Which is, has negative connotations. Right. Classic dish would be chop suey, egg foo young, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. The third kind, which I curated over half a century ago, which is basically true to its author's intent, each dish. So my philosophy, very basic philosophy, everything is it tells me what to do. I never tell it what to do. Everything's many things involved, and you identify what are the many things, and then you always go to the truth of that.
18: Well, there's this Chinese phrase that you use, that my parents use, mm-hmm. too. 吃苦 to eat bitter, mm-hmm. which means right. yeah. to suffer, to yeah. persevere through pain. And yeah. you say in this documentary that you have to eat bitter to do anything great in life. Do you really believe that that success and pain are always intertwined?
27: Well, if you're an expressionist artist, violence and uh, suffering is part of it, you know it's to purify the soul. In order to be a great painter, you have to go through the suffering process. It's part of the natural order of things.
18: You have been a painter throughout your life. You've also been a film actor. You've been a restaurateur. What connects all of that creation? What is the through line for all of that creativity for To be you? true. To be true.
27: That's it. We're done. To be kind and to be real. Now, both are very difficult to do. Yes. If you think about it. Absolutely. So, how are you going to be kind? So, in order to be kind, you have to have certain tools. Like, eat bitter. Eat bitter is a tool. How to believe, how to have faith. If you are kind and you develop your internal, you will be rewarded. And the truth always prevails, you see?
18: You're reminding me of something your father, Mm. you said that your father said to you. Mm -hmm. He said, don't listen to the hand applauding. Mm Listen to the heart, well, that's applauding. A,
27: that's a no-brainer.
18: Have you gotten there,
27: though? No, I'm not. I'm trying. You're trying. <laughs> but so what I is say, the
18: applause you seek right now? At the
27: moment, this you know, let's do a little commercial, a.k.a. Mr. Child, that this documentary has been, I don't know, it's like people going nuts, right? <laughs> they're going, I don't know why they're going nuts, but anyway, I say, okay, I take it. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. So the more that stuff coming to more, the more I'm able to be humble. Before that, I'm always fighting. I say, I'm the greatest, you don't understand. You know, Let's make it very simple. Everybody be kind and be real. Can you imagine what the world could be looked like? I mean, Mondrian once said something about it. if the whole world become perfect proportion, there will be no war. You know, And I'm a collector, basically. A collector and collagist. Collector meaning I collect all the sayings. Things came from religion leaders, can be from movies, can be from jokes. I collect, I'm a great collector. I'm a fantastic collector. I'm collecting you right now. Awesome. I want to see what I can learn from you yeah. right now, okay? Yeah. And, um, and i had this exchange with you, and this is very rewarding, and, uh, and our path in destiny, as it were, we we're crossed. supposed to meet, we cross yes. to meet. You know, so we, we are, I'm very, this is an important moment between you and I, as human to human, as it were.
18: I do feel a connection yes. with you, M. Yes. And I agree with you. I think the most important thing in this world, in this life, is to be kind. Yes. So thank you for reminding us of that. Thank you. M is the subject of the new documentary, A.K.A. Mr. Chow. Thank you so much for visiting with us, M. It was such
27: a pleasure. Thank you.
16: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
14: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver Card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is WBUR
0: with interest cuts visible on the horizon. Housing starts surged by 14.8% last month. Tonight in business news starting at 6.30, we take a deeper look at what's driving the increase. Clear overnight tonight, down to about 29 for a low. Tomorrow should peak at 42 degrees, a good share of sunshine tomorrow. Then Thursday, partly to mostly sunny, but it may
34: stick to the 30s. 41 degrees in Boston at 5.59. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974. In Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com.
33: I'm WBUR City Space Director, Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: The first woman to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor, was memorialized today at the National Cathedral, where President Biden said she broke down the barriers in legal and political worlds and in the nation's consciousness. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, December 19th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, former President Donald Trump's attacks on his political opponents are growing more severe.
12: The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within.
0: Trump's rhetoric is causing alarm and drawing comparisons to autocratic leaders and dictators. Also ahead, why suicide rates are high among veterinary professionals. And in the northernmost town in the U.S., there's no Santa workshop, but there is a unique maker's space. We'll hear about it coming up. It's
8: 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Pentagon has announced a naval task force to protect commercial shipping in the Red Sea against drone and missile attacks from Houthi militants from Yemen. NPR's Tom Bowman has more.
7: Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced a task force, dubbed Prosperity Guardian, while on a trip to the Middle East. The U.S. and nearly a dozen other countries, including Great Britain, Bahrain, France, and Norway, are expected to take part. Commercial shipping companies have begun to bypass the Red Sea, a major trading lane in the wake of attacks that have damaged ships. Houthi leaders say the attacks are designed to show solidarity with Hamas fighters battling Israel. Some Republicans, including Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi, have urged the Biden administration to attack Houthi sites on land but officials say they don't want to widen the Israeli-Gaza war. Tom Bowman, NPR News.
8: Israeli forces meanwhile continuing their operations in Gaza, raiding one of the last functioning hospitals in northern Gaza, while continuing their bombardment of the south with deadly airstrikes. The Israeli military is pressing forward with this offensive with continued U.S. backing, even as the civilian loss of life continues to generate international outrage. The air and ground war launched in response to the October 7th attack by Hamas against Israel. Missouri's Attorney General is providing backup to ex-owner Elon Musk's legal fight against a left-leaning media watchdog group. But St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum reports the state AG's investigation into Media Matters for America may run into roadblocks.
3: Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey opened up an investigation into whether Media Matters ran afoul of the state's consumer protection laws when it ran articles showing how ads appear next to anti-Semitic content. Bailey calls X a haven for free speech.
4: I'm concerned that there may be entities that will lie Gene steal to take that freedom away from us.
3: Media attorney Gene Maniki says Bailey's investigation will run into trouble if he can't prove the articles contain falsity.
15: That's a key part of it all, and if you don't have proof of that, you're going to have a hard time.
3: Media Matters has said that X's attorneys verified the facts in their articles when they claimed that the ads appearing next to racist content was rare.
8: For NPR News, I'm Jason Rosenbaum in St. Louis. Search engine company Google is agreeing to pay a $700 million fine and also make a number of other concessions in order to settle allegations. It sought to stifle competition against its Android App Store. Although the deal was struck with state attorneys general back in September, terms were not released until today. The announcement comes a week after a federal court jury rebuked Google for anti-competitive practices. settlement includes $630 million to compensate U.S. consumers. Stocks continued their run-ups. The Dow gained 251 points today. The Nasdaq was up 98 points. The S&P gained 27 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's office says she plans to apologize to two black men wrongfully arrested in the Charles Stewart case. Charles Stewart orchestrated the 1989 shooting death of his pregnant wife, Carol, in Mission Hill, Boston. He falsely accused a black man, and that stoked racial tension and mistrust of Boston police by the black community. Tomorrow morning, Mayor Wu will publicly acknowledge the harm done and will also apologize to Alan Swanson and Willie Bennett, who were named suspects and were arrested. Stewart took his own life in 1990 as the scheme began to unravel. Utilities in Massachusetts are still working to restore power for customers after yesterday's storm. The state reports more than 66,000 outages right now. Craig Holstrom is president for regional electric operations at Eversource.
12: I'm really confident that by this evening, the majority of people will be restored. We'll clean up tomorrow and then we'll help anybody who maybe has some damage that they can't be restored, you know, damage to their particular Um, homes or businesses.
0: The worst-hit area is around the South Shore. Sales of single-family homes and condos in Greater Boston dropped to their lowest levels for the month of November in at least 12 years. That's according to data released today by the Greater Boston Association of Realtors. Here's WBRI's Nindor and Wameka.
30: Sales of single-family homes and condos fell roughly 13% in November compared to the same time last year. But prices were high for homes that did sell. The median sales price of a single family home in Greater Boston hit a new record high for November at $800,000. Allison Sosha is president of the Greater Boston Association of Realtors.
2: We did see a modest increase in available new listings for single families. However, the new listings are down um, kind of month over month.
30: Sosha says low inventory remains a challenge for home buyers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zininjor and Wameka.
0: The Salvation Army will hold the final day of its annual Christmas Castle distribution tomorrow. Salvation Army Director of Social Services Jeffrey Bailey says the group anticipated serving 5,100 families, but with new people walking in, it's closer to 5,700.
8: Every child from age 0 to 12 receives two toys per child. And then we give a gift card depending on the size of the family. We're not giving away actual food at the time. We're giving them the capacity to go purchase the food and resources that they need.
0: Bailey says the Christmas Castle will be open tomorrow at the Salvation Army Boston Croc Center from 8.30 until 4. The organization continues to ask for donations to help people in need, many for the first time. A windy, dry night ahead about the upper 20s overnight. And then for tomorrow, partly to mostly sunny skies, highs should peak at about 42 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 6.07.
9: WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Former President Donald Trump is dominating Republican primaries, and he's doing it while increasingly using language that echoes strongman leaders of the past. Rather than emphatically rejecting the label, Trump has seemingly embraced it. But there may be a strategy behind Trump's words on the campaign trail, as well as online, one that is fueling his base. Here for more are NPR's Franco Ordonez, who covers the campaign, and Odette Youssef, NPR's domestic extremism correspondent. Hi to both of you. Hello. Hey, wanna. Franco, I want to start with you. Trump has always used dark language on the campaign trail, but is it actually getting more extreme?
11: I mean, you're right, Juan. I mean, dehumanizing language has been a big part of his politics. But he has ramped up the autocratic language in ways that we're just not really used to hearing on the campaign trail. I mean, this weekend, Trump told supporters in New Hampshire that immigrants were, quote, poisoning the blood of our country, which the Biden campaign and some scholars likened to the words of Adolf Hitler. And Trump, he's cast this election as, quote, our final battle. I am your warrior, I am your
12: justice, and for those who have been wronged and betrayed,
6: I am your retribution, I am your retribution.
11: Another big difference is that his targets have shifted. In 2016, he saved his most vitriolic attacks against outsiders, migrants, Muslims, remember the Muslim ban. But in this campaign, his attacks in many ways have been sharper against political opponents right here in the United States.
12: The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous and grave than the threat from within. Our threat is from within.
11: He's called political opponents vermin who needed to be rooted out. Now, of course, Trump has pushed back on these characterizations and claims Biden is the greater threat to democracy. But it's Trump's language, particularly against people within the United States, that's leading some of these political scholars to draw these alarming comparisons to past autocratic leaders and dictators.
10: Right. And Odette, you have been looking specifically at Trump's rhetoric on social media. Tell us what you've been seeing there.
13: Yeah, Juan, I've really focused on what Trump's activity has been on Truth Social, um, because you'll recall after January 6th, he was booted off of Twitter and Facebook until relatively recently. And on Truth Social, there have been a couple of trends. Um, First, his volume of posts has really been climbing over time, especially starting in the early summer. His number of posts daily has grown. Uh, And this is likely attributed to two things. Um, First, campaign season is really getting into gear. But also to the fact that the number of indictments were piling up. And so a major theme of his posts have related to those cases. But the second trend that we're seeing is that we're seeing him invoking much darker language in his posts, um, particularly about what he says the future would look like without a second Trump term. Um, I spoke to Kirsten Tai about this. She's a professor at Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, and she's studied Trump's rhetoric both online and offline since he ran for president in 2015.
33: One of the things I've been noticing lately on Truth Social
14: is the framing of next year's election as sort of a last chance for America. So he's sharing content and his supporters are sharing content with the message of this is our final battle to save America. And the implication
10: that this is what the very last election for our country. And Franco, you have been speaking to people who study political rhetoric. How is it that in this day and age, sounding like a strong man can be a successful political tactic?
11: Right. I mean, Donald Trump knows how to use words for effect, and he knows how to use words as a weapon. I mean, he says these outrageous things to stoke his base. And, you know, I've been at rallies and and people are laughing at these comments. And it also keeps the spotlight on Trump. But those who study political rhetoric say Trump has crossed the line from flirting with these autocratic themes into real strongman messaging. I talked to Jennifer Mercia; She's a professor at Texas A&M University. She says Trump is following the authoritarian playbook.
15: It's always the same process. They narrate a nation in crisis. They say that politics is war, the enemy cheats, the rules no longer apply because they've already broken them. Therefore, put me into power because I will break the rules for you. I will do to them what they have already done to you.
13: And look, you know, Wanda, there is also a portion of Trump's base that wants a strongman leader. You know, they like what they're hearing.
10: Okay, say more about that, Odette.
13: Well, earlier, uh, Franco brought in some tape of Trump using words like retribution and warrior. And these are words that resonate in a very particular way with a growing far-right religious movement that's increasingly influencing politics at the state and federal levels and which seeks to impose, quote, biblical governance in the United States. You know, that's not a popular idea in this country. But Trump legitimized those voices during his first presidency, and through him, they see a path toward their goal. There's another part of his base also, uh, one that we've all heard about, which is QAnon. Yeah, it's still a thing. Um, You know, people who believe in that conspiracy theory see Trump as a kind of savior against forces of evil. And analysis from Media Matters for America found that since Trump moved his online activity to truth social primarily, He's amplified QAnon promoting accounts much more than he ever did before. And this, you know, final battle language that he's using, this also speaks to these parts of his base who are actually counting on an authoritarian regime if he is reelected.
10: I mean, Odette, so former President Trump is using language that resonates with a more extreme portion of his base. But do we know anything about how they respond to it?
13: Well, there was this interesting court filing in one of the Trump cases recently where a court security officer claimed that Trump's social media posts correlated directly to threats against people in those cases. Um, So specifically, he documented what happened when Trump's posts targeted the law clerk for a New York judge. He said that the number of threatening voicemails she received uh, when transcribed Amounted to more than 275 single spaced pages, and half of that was anti Semitic. But on the flip side, Juana, when the judge in that case imposed a gag order on Trump, those threats decreased.
10: Okay, Franco, I'll let you have the last word here. Stepping back a bit, has Trump's rhetoric had a larger impact on politics in Washington?
11: You know, Juan, it was just a few weeks ago that there were members of Congress and their spouses who are getting threats over votes for the next Republican House Speaker. I mean, the reality is we're living at a moment where studies show more Americans, and it's particularly among Republicans, who feel that resorting to violence may be necessary to save the country.
10: NPR's Franco Ordonez and Odette Youssef, thanks to both of you.
11: Thank you.
13: Thank you.
16: Today, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was laid to rest at the National Cathedral.
17: We received the body of our sister, Sandra Day O'Connor,
6: for burial.
18: President Biden delivered remarks memorializing the justice's historic nomination.
6: More than 40 years ago, on a Wednesday in September 1981, the Senate Judiciary Committee came to order. I was the ranking member of that committee and the day's business was momentous. The nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor to become the first woman in American history to serve as a Supreme Court Justice on the United States Supreme Court.
16: O'Connor served on the Supreme Court for 24 years. After announcing her retirement in 2005, John Roberts was nominated to fill a vacancy in the court. Roberts had worked with O'Connor's team during her confirmation hearings when he was a young attorney at the Department of Justice. He
18: says it was during this time that she impressed upon him a central maxim of her philosophy as a public servant, get it done. And it's a lesson she reinforced in the brief time they overlapped on the court.
19: She and I were discussing a case in Chambers, and I think she grew tired of my on the one hand and on the other hand. She simply got up and said, you just have to decide. There was impatience in her voice, but I don't think it was entirely due to me. She had made her own decision about the future and announced her retirement six months earlier. I think she was anxious to get it done.
16: Next to speak was O'Connor's youngest son, Jay. He recounted his mother's love of reading, which he said transported her to other worlds from her Arizona ranch. He said that love of reading ultimately led her to Stanford University.
18: And it's no surprise that the justice was a star in school, Jay said. But while sorting through some of his mother's papers, he found a box of report cards from middle and high
20: school. Of course, her marks were sterling until I was shocked to see something. A bee, a scarlet bee. And imagine what class it was in, civics. Sandra Day O'Connor once got a bee in civics.
16: Finally, he read from a letter that Justice O'Connor left for her sons to read near the end of her life. In a parting message, she wrote to them.
20: Our purpose in life is to help others along the way. May you each try to do the same. Our purpose in life is to help others along the way. What a beautiful, powerful, and totally Sandra Day O'Connor sentiment.
18: That was Jay O'Connor eulogizing his mother, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Her funeral was today at the National Cathedral in Washington.
16: Tomorrow on Morning Edition, the fight over the Voting Rights Act in Georgia. At issue are Republican-drawn maps that one federal judge says dilute the power of Black voters. Now both sides are back
21: in court. We were not ordered back here by Judge Jones to maintain the status quo. We were ordered here to change Georgia's maps so that they reflect the inevitable shift in Georgia's population.
16: That battle and what it means for the 2024 election tomorrow on Morning Edition. You can listen on the radio, online, or on your smart speaker. Right now, you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And right here at 90.9 WBUR, in business, make it nine straight days of wins for the Dow. Today, the index rose nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up about six-tenths of a percent to a near record high. And the Nasdaq also ended up gaining ground about seven-tenths of a percent. More business coming up.
9: WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm Scott Simon.
35: Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love.
29: Just go to wbur.org.
0: A Boston-based healthcare company that aims to destigmatize healthcare for people with obesity has raised $20 million in its first funding round. The company, KnownWell, launched in January. It provides in-person and virtual primary care and metabolic care. The company plans to use the cash to expand its hybrid care offerings geographically, and enter clinical trials with pharmaceutical companies. And gasoline prices are sliding downward ahead of the holiday. AAA Northeast says the statewide average is $3.26 a gallon. That's down 17 cents in the past month. The forecast is coming up.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids, because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org.
0: Clear skies overnight tonight, about 29 for a low. And then we should have some generally sunny days for the remainder of the work week at least. Tomorrow should reach 42 degrees, then just the 30s for Thursday and Friday, partly to mostly sunny and dry through Friday. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter at WBUR.org slash newsletters.
16: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
18: And I'm Elsa Chang. Working in the veterinary field and helping animals can bring joy to those in the profession. But data shows that veterinarians are more likely to die by suicide than the general population. Anna Spital of Side Effects Public Media reports that it's a complex issue researchers and others are trying to solve. And a warning, this story contains discussions of both suicide and euthanasia.
22: At the University of Missouri's Veterinary Health Center, students work alongside veterinary professionals during the clinical portion of training. Here, they'll learn to treat everything from horses to cows to dogs of every kind. Third-year vet student Megan Lawler is at the very beginning of her clinical training. She began her rotations about two months ago. She loves her work, but says it comes with a lot of stress.
23: As a veterinary student, you're striving to still get the best grades and be president of all these clubs. And then it carries on into being a practicing veterinary professional.
22: During her first year, Lawler struggled with anxiety and perfectionism. She sought the support of Carrie Carafa. Carafa researches mental health in veterinary professions, and he's a psychologist whose office is tucked away in Mazoo's main vet med building. His white noise machine is a constant presence. He says it creates a soothing and private atmosphere when he counsels veterinary students.
24: Vet students, they're taking care of themselves, but they're also taking care of the, the patients, the pets. In some ways, they're kind of taking care of the, the owners as well. They're exposed to a lot of kind of emotionally intense you know, situations.
22: In his research, Carafa has found that things like perfectionism, financial stress, burnout, and conflicts with clients over things like treatment options and cost can all contribute to mental health for vet students and professionals. A 2019 Centers for Disease Control study shows veterinarians are between two to four times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. Mental health counselor Taylor Miller is a former veterinarian. She's also an advocate for not one more vet, It's an organization that works to promote mental well-being among people who work in the field.
31: We want to make it possible for people to exist in this career that is so wonderful without being hurt. Euthanasia
22: is often brought up as the driving
31: force behind
22: stress and high suicide rates among veterinarians. Research has found that using drugs to end an animal's life can have a psychological impact, but there isn't conclusive data linking it to suicides. Studies have found that access to euthanasia drugs may play a part in vet suicide rates. Experts in the industry have proposed a variety of ways they hope will lower the numbers. Epidemiologist Suzanne Tomasi says one suggestion calls for putting stickers with crisis hotline numbers inside of drug lockboxes.
25: That would be something that would be easy and it wouldn't take really any money
22: Tomasi works for the CDC's National Institute for Occupational Health and Safety and is a former veterinarian. She says one of the big problems is that the profession doesn't have gatekeepers. Instead of pharmacists dispensing medication, it's veterinarians who both prescribe and dispense it for the animals they treat. And they often hold the keys to the lockboxes where drugs are kept. So another suggestion includes implementing a two-person system in order to access the drugs. However, Tomasi says that's not doable for most rural vets who often work alone.
23: Those large animal vets that are in a truck by themselves, they don't have somebody else with them, so who's going to sign off?
22: Ultimately, Tomasi says that there should be more of an effort to make cultural changes like reducing long hours that lead to burnout and finding ways to reduce student loan debt. But she says access to euthanasia drugs shouldn't be left out of the conversation, especially for people who are already experiencing a crisis. For NPR News, I'm Anna Speidel in Columbia, Missouri.
18: And if you or someone you know is in a mental health crisis, you can call 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three numbers, 988.
16: The closest thing to Santa's workshop, in Alaska anyway, is a building just blocks from the Arctic coast. It is the nation's northernmost maker space, a place where indigenous artists can create things like walrus ivory earrings, figurines made from whale baleen, and traditional knives with caribou antler handles. As Emily Schwing reports, what's made here is steeped in thousands of years of
26: tradition. It's polar night this time of year in the Arctic but there's a golden glow from the windows of the traditional room at the Inupiat Heritage Center in the heart of Utqiaġvik. Inside, Bansaw's buzz and Sander's whirr. Two years ago, Percy Aiken bought a piece of walrus ivory. He didn't know what to do with it, so he came here to take a class. Ever since, he's been fashioning perfectly smooth, shiny beads for bracelets and earrings. Aiken's jewelry is a main source of income for him.
27: It gets me by for now. Once I have steady uh,
28: ivory coming in, I'll be making a lot of what I do.
26: I love carving now. Gosh, there's all kinds of stuff that come out of that traditional room. Colleen Lehman was the director of the Inupiat Heritage Center for nearly half a decade. The traditional room is available to all of Utqiagvik's 4,000-some residents. More than 100 people use this space each year to make, create, and take classes. One of the coolest
28: things that I thought that came out of there were whale jaws. I've seen an artisan who was commissioned to carve things on those whale jaw bones.
26: Whales are central to life in Utqiagvik. It's a main staple in the Inupiaq subsistence diet so many people this far north rely on. But whale jaw bones are both enormous and extremely heavy. So this is one of the only spaces big enough for an artist to work on a commission like that. Finding workspace and industrial tools is a challenge for indigenous artists who live in hundreds of rural communities there aren't many large buildings and shipping costs are high. James Putkatuk is hunched over a workbench. He fiddles with something small, dark brown, and pointy. Well,
21: I'm making, uh, right now, this is a uh, grizzly bear claw, and I'm, I'm attaching a, a walrus tusk ivory on, on top of it so I can make a, a head, figurine head.
26: His goal is to fashion a pendant for a bolo tie. Putkatuk's father was a jewelry maker.
21: He passed away about 10 years ago, and that's when I finally sat down and decided to learn how to do this.
26: Inupiaq artists like Putkatuk have learned how to use walrus ivory and whale baleen from their elders. They're building on traditional designs that are thousands of years old. The local municipal government funds this space, and without it, Kutkatuk says he wouldn't be able to make anything.
21: I mean, yeah, this whole this whole place is so, it's so useful for everybody. This is called a traditional room for yeah. a purpose.
26: He says he's found his purpose here, where he carries on the work his father taught him how to do. For NPR News, I'm Emily Schwing in Utkayahvik.
0: This is NPR News. This is ninety point nine WBUR. A clear, dry night ahead. Temperatures falling to just below freezing. Still pretty breezy out there. At least partly sunny skies for the next several days. Tomorrow bright. Highs about forty-two. And then for the rest of the week, temperatures could be in the thirties. The Bruins take on the Minnesota Wild at the Garden tonight. The bees have still got the top spot in the Eastern Conference, tied in points with the Rangers. Game starts at seven. Celtics face the Golden State Warriors tonight in California. Game time is ten o'clock. And New England's Major League Soccer team has a new coach, Caleb Porter, will join the New England Revolution as the ninth official head coach in the club's history. This is WBUR. It's eight, at
29: 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Spring semester starts January 22nd semesteroff.com.